He is just a uh, tremendous man of God. Uh, like I say, he's a deacon. He is a humble and approachable man, which just makes him an awesome evangelist. He's zealous for evangelism. He's an awesome preacher and teacher. So we're, it's such a treat to have him with us here this morning. Without further ado, we're going to welcome you to share the word, brother. I'm glad to be here. It's such a blessing. Some of you guys have I've known you guys for years and years back at City Church. Many of y'all have blessed my life, my my family over here, my growing family. We've got number five on the way. We've got four boys. Number five's Mystery. We're not going to find out. That's not their name. We're not going to call them Mystery, actually. I don't know. Maybe. No. Um, yeah, so we got we got our fifth kid on the way. We're stoked about that. Might be a little girl. We don't know. We're not sure what we'd do if we had a little girl. We're good at putting out fires. We're not so sure what to do when, you know, people's emotions get hurt or things like that. We just kind of <laughs> slap some dirt on them and I get out there. You'll be okay. Um, so I, I want to... I want to speak this morning on a woman named Hannah. And if I were to give a quick summary statement of what I want to say this morning, it's this. It's that God uses Hannah, a barren, humiliated woman, without title, without position, who walks in faith, integrity, and in humility to bless an entire nation. So God takes this woman without title, without position. She's barren. She's being mocked and humiliated. She's in this place of brokenness, and God uses her life, and he works through her faith, through her integrity, and through her sacrifice to bless the nation of Israel. Okay? So let's start off and look at the backdrop. So... Uh, we begin with Hannah enters the scene in the midst of what I will call a broken world. So the book First Samuel begins after the ending of Judges, and Judges is a chronicle of the first 400 years of the nation of Israel. So they are uh, in Joshua. They take over the promised land. They drive out most of the inhabitants, but you still have this remnant of inhabitants that they didn't drive out. And so Judges is actually kind of a sad and discouraging book. Because as you read it, you see this growth of corruption, this growth of immorality. You see this growth of idolatry in the nation of Israel. Their first 400 years, they're already blowing it. In fact, what's interesting is Israel is becoming just like the Canaanites that they drove out. The very people that God dispossessed so that they could have the promised land, they're becoming just like them. And it's, it's a graphic, violent book of, of brokenness. And so Hannah enters the scene just at the end of this 400 years of brokenness. We see a nation that is becoming like the nations they were intended to, to dispossess, right? So the second thing is, is we see that there's this broken priesthood. We see the religious leadership in the nation is broken. It starts speaking about this man named Eli. He's the, he's the, uh, the, the priest at the time and he has these two sons who are, uh, his working also in the, in the tabernacle. And these priests are immoral. They're, the, the sons of Eli are sleeping with the women who work at the tabernacle. They're, they're profaning the offerings of God. When the people bring their offerings, they're supposed to burn up the fat as a fragrant aroma to God, and the guys are like, no, I ain't waiting for that. And they've taken the meat before it's ready, and even Eli, it talks about him being fat. He's getting fat on this. These guys are indulging themselves, and they're profaning the sacrifice of God. It says this about them in uh, 1 Samuel chapter 2, 12. It says, Eli's sons were wicked men. They had no regard for the Lord. And it also says this, 3 verse 1, it says, In those days the word of the Lord was rare. There were not many visions. 
And so we see a brokenness in the religious community, a brokenness in a nation and a brokenness in the religious community. And then we enter the story of Hannah. And so if you've got your Bibles, we're going to be in pretty much the whole time, 1 Samuel chapter 1 and 2. Um, so you can open it up. I realize this might be a little small for some of you to see. Um, so let's begin. Verse 1 of Samuel chapter 1. There was a certain man from Ramathame, a Zuphite from the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkanah, son of Joraham, the son of Elihu, the son of Tohu, the son of Zuf, an Ephraimite. He had two wives. That's your first problem. One was called Hannah, and the other was Penina. Penina had children, but Hannah had none. Year after year, this man went up from his town to worship and sacrifice to the Lord Almighty at Shiloh, where Hophni and Phinehas, the two sons of Eli, were priests of the Lord. Whenever the day came for Elkanah to sacrifice, he would give portions of the meat to his wife, Penina, and to all her sons and daughters. But to Hannah, he gave a double portion because he loved her, and the Lord had closed her womb. And because the Lord had closed her womb, her rival kept provoking her in order to irritate her. And this went on year after year. Whenever Hannah went up to the house of the Lord, her rival provoked her till she wept and would not eat. And Elkanah, her husband, would say to her, Hannah, why are you weeping? Why don't you eat? Why are you downhearted? Don't I mean more to you than ten sons? And so we begin with the picture of this woman who's born into a broken nation uh, with, a, with a broken religious leadership. And now we see there's brokenness in her home. That this woman is, is childless at a time when to have children was in that society kind of the, the quintessential element of what it means to be a successful woman. That was the picture of success in their eyes. And she and God had shut her womb. Right, And so she's broken. So it's not only is she barren, but the second problem is there's another woman. right? So that's a problem too. right? And naturally, when you read throughout the Bible, when a man has multiple wives, you see problems. right? You see difficulty and turmoil in the, in the relationship. And so you see there's a second woman, but not only is there a second woman, this second woman happens to be quite fruitful. And so there's this natural tendency towards jealousy and bitterness that God is giving to this other woman what he is withholding from Hannah. But not only is she barren, and not only is there two women, and not only is the other woman having them by the bushel, right? What's the other problem? The other problem is the other woman's mean. She's not, she's not coming over to Hannah and hugging her and saying, hey, I feel, I feel you, sister. No, she's mocking her. She's, she's irritating her. She's, she's causing her to be so distressed that she can't even eat. She's weeping in the, in, the, in the temple of the Lord. So we see this woman born into a broken nation, in a broken religious society. The, the, the leadership is broken, and we see a broken home. We see a broken womb, right? And Elkanah, her husband, is quite like the rest of us. He didn't really know what to do when his wife gets emotional, Right? So he, we see Elkanah and he's like, oh man, what do I do? Here, you want a bigger plate of food? You know, he, he's trying to fix it by, just like a guy. He's like, oh, you're crying. Okay. No, you need to hold her, Elkanah. You need to, you need to, he doesn't get it, like most of us. And, and he's, he is, um, he's trying to fix it in some way. And then he says just something really brilliant. He says, don't I mean more to you than ten sons? Right? He's like, I mean, you don't have kids, but I mean, look at me, right? I mean, <laughs> he really can't complain. So Elkanah is kind of, he's, he's, he's a, he's a typical guy. It actually, the, the text doesn't picture him as, as, as some wicked, immoral guy. He actually seems to be, according to the text, fairly righteous guy. Um, he, he's 
faithful in going to the temple. He's faithful in making vows and worshiping God. So he's not pictured as a bad guy. He's just, he just doesn't quite know how to help his wife in her brokenness, right? Interestingly, he says, am I not, am I not better for you or as good for you as ten sons, right? Why, why does it say ten sons? It's an interesting phrase. Any, anybody think of something that could be connected to ha- someone having ten sons? That's a, that's a good, that's a good guess, and it might be it, it might be it, it doesn't say, but actually it's interesting is Rachel and Leah, when Jacob, one of the patriarchs, marries Rachel, she's barren for a period of time. You know how many sons Jacob has during the period of Rachel's barrenness? Ten. Ten. Most of them by her sister, and then a couple of handmaids. Um, so you, so it's interesting is there's this picture, and maybe, maybe even in there there's this, this hope, this glimmer of hope that maybe this woman, Rachel, was loved, but she was barren. And now we see Hannah, who's loved, but she's barren. And so maybe there's a glimmer of hope that as Rachel was given uh, Joseph and Benjamin, maybe indeed Hannah will be blessed with a child. And so there's this interesting picture there. I, and so the question is, is, let's think about our own lives for a moment. Have you ever been there? Some of you, perhaps, have been or are currently experiencing the exact same thing as Hannah is experiencing childlessness. Hopefully there's not a second woman, but, 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 but you are experiencing this, this God has shut the womb, right? Can you imagine the, the, the turmoil of Hannah? God just commanded in Genesis 1, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth, and now He's closed off the door for you fulfilling the very thing that God told you to do. And you feel the deep hurt and brokenness that God is, as, has seemed to be keeping from you the one thing that He's given to almost everybody. Just everybody's having kids left and right, and you're sitting there unable to have it. That's a place of deep sorrow and hurt, even in our society. Some of us are single. We haven't even got to the spot where we're, we're one step even removed from that, right? We're just getting older and all of our friends are getting married and we're just still waiting, right? We feel like God has shut a door that's a natural door, a door that most of the people in the society are going through and for some reason you are being left outside and it hurts. The, the Bible says that a hope deferred makes the heart sick and you're experiencing heart sickness uh, for some of us, there's handicaps, right? You, you're not able to do what everybody else is running around doing. And you're like, why is God preventing me from enjoying these things that everybody is doing? Financial strain, you've been saving, you've been intentionally, you know, saving your money, being faithful, being trying to be real wise and good stewards, and somebody rear-ends your car, right? The pipe busts in the house and floods your floor, right? You've been, you've been trying to get ahead, and God just seems to keep shutting the door in your face. You're at work, you're not getting the promotion, the other guy's getting it, and you know you're better. You know that you've worked harder, you're a better employee, you're getting skipped over. And some of us, it's actually interesting, some of it's ministry opportunity, right? You feel like God has called you to use your giftings in some way, and you feel like God keeps preventing you from exercising your gifts in that way, maybe a public way of some kind, right? You ever felt that? That maybe, you know, God, it's what's interesting, is God says, go to all the world, take the gospel to all the nations and make disciples, and you're like, all right, I'm ready to do that. And then God seems to close the door on you and not let you do it in a, as in a, um, in a full-time way, in some, some sense. You feel like God is closing the door there. So, so what do we do when God closes the womb, when God shuts the door, when God withholds from us? So if we look back at the history, we look at the patriarchs, we see some of the women that came beforehand, and we see how they dealt with the barrenness of the womb. It was a common problem going back through, through we see Sarah, Abraham's wife, dealt with barrenness. Uh, Rebecca did for a while, and even Rachel dealt with his barrenness. How did they originally deal with it? 
Let's, let's look at Sarah real quick in Genesis 16, 1 through 6. I'm just going to read portions of it that are up on the screen. So she's barren. She says to Abraham, The Lord has kept me from having children, so go sleep with my maidservant. Perhaps I can build a family through her. Then Sarai says to Abraham, Oh, yeah, there's a skip there. So it works, right? So Hagar, the maidservant, gets pregnant, and there starts being tension and problems, and now Sarah's kind of changing her tune. She looks at Abraham and says, You are responsible for the wrong I'm suffering. I put my servant in your arms, and now that she knows she is pregnant, she despises me. May the Lord judge between you and me. And then Sarah actually mistreats Hagar, and Hagar flees from her. Now, Sarah is called a woman of faith. Sarah is a, definitely a model of, of great faith and trust in God. But in this moment, we see a picture of, of lack of faith. We see God shutting a door and Sarah trying to sneak around and see if the back door is unlocked. Right? We, we do that sometimes with God. God seems to close something on us and we're like, well, you know what? I bet he didn't lock the window. You know, we're, we're spending all of our energy and all our time trying to get around the locked door that God has closed. Rachel does something similar in Genesis 30. When Rachel saw that she was not bearing Jacob any children, she became jealous of her sister. Jealousy is a sin. Tenth commandment, thou shalt not covet. So she said to Jacob, give me children or I'll die. That's just really beautiful statement there. Jacob became angry with her and said, am I in the place of God who has kept you from having children? And then she said, Okay, here is Bilhah, my maidservant. Sleep with her so that she can bear children for me, that through her I too can build a family. So when we see God closing a door of us in some, in some area of our lives, so often the tendency is to try to fix it on our own. We're gonna, we're gonna, okay, God, you lock this door. I'm gonna get through. I'm gonna find a way to get into that place that you're holding back from me, right? We try to fix it on our own. We take it into our own hands. By our own hands is often the, the thing that we're doing. Or, like some of these ladies do as well, they start blaming others. Right? They start blaming their husband. Right? You're having financial strain and you're like, you ain't making enough money. And they're like, you ain't, you're spending too much money. Right? You've got, you've got, you've got, you've got problems. You're blaming somebody else. Right? You're, or ministry. Right? You want to step into some role in ministry. You blame the pastor. Because he's not seeing the giftings you have. He's not putting you and giving you those opportunities. He's squelching the giftings God's given you. He's closing the door and it's his fault. We see it also in Saul, interestingly enough. In Samuel, this story goes on to tell about Saul taking things into his own hands. He gets into a stressful situation. The Philistines are lining up, ready to, ready to go to battle. Saul is freaking out because Samuel's not there. He's supposed to come and do the sacrifice. And Saul does what is unauthorized for him to do. He's not the priest. He's not the one to make the sacrifice. And so he, he does the sacrifice anyway. And that's part of, the, part of the downfall of Saul is because he refused to wait upon the Lord. He took it into his own hands. And in contrast, if you keep reading in the book of Samuel, you'll get to David. What does David do? David is told he's going to be anointed the, the, the future king, right? And he has two different opportunities to take out Saul, the one standing in his way between stepping onto the throne, right? And what does David do when he gets those opportunities? Does he take it into his own hands? He doesn't. He refuses to take it. In fact, he uses the exact words, Do not, I will not take it into my own hands. In 1 Samuel 24, verse 10, it says, May the Lord judge between you and me, David talking to Saul, and may the Lord avenge the wrongs you have done to me, but my hand will not touch you. David is a picture of one who waits upon the Lord. He trusts in the sovereign God who both closes the womb and opens the womb. 
So now let's look at Hannah. What does she do? Continuing our story in 1 Samuel chapter 1, starting in verse, verse 9. Once when they had finished eating and drinking in Shiloh, Hannah stood up. Now Eli the priest was sitting on a chair by the doorpost of the Lord's temple. And in bitterness of soul, Hannah wept much and prayed to the Lord. And she made a vow saying, O Lord Almighty, if you will only look upon your servant's misery and remember me and not forget your servant, but give her a son, then I will give him to the Lord for all the days of his life. And no razor will ever be used on his head. As she kept on praying to the Lord, Eli observed her mouth. Hannah was praying in her heart and her lips were moving, but her voice was not heard. Eli thought she was drunk. And he said to her, how long will you keep on getting drunk? Get rid of your wine. Not so, my Lord, Hannah replied. I am a woman who is deeply troubled. I have not been drinking wine or beer. I was pouring out my soul to the Lord. Do not take your servant for a wicked woman. I have been praying here out of my great anguish and grief. Hannah, in contrast to some of those who go before her and even Saul who comes after her, brings her brokenness to the Lord. She doesn't try to sneak around the back and manipulate it and fix it by her own hands. She leaves it in the hands of the sovereign God and she goes to him. She goes to the one who holds the key to the door. She she appeals and pours out her heart to God. She multiple times shows her humility in this passage. She talks about, I am your servant. Be merciful to your servant. She also shows fervency in her prayer. She speaks of this weeping much and pouring out her soul in great anguish. It sounds almost what we hear of Jesus in the garden, pouring out his soul to the Father, entrusting himself to the Father. Psalm 62, 8 David says this, Trust in Him at all times, O people. Pour out your hearts to Him, for God is our refuge. It would seem that Hannah has recognized that God is our refuge, that God is the one who holds the key, God is the one who opens the door, and God is the one who shuts it. And and you can see the beauty of her fervency of her prayer. When people start thinking you're drunk, that's when you're really praying fervently, right? <laughs> when people see the depth of anguish and the emotion in your, in your soul that you are really crying out to God out of deep brokenness, um, I think sometimes we, we, we are, we're very flippant in our prayers, right? And God closed the door like, well, like if you fix that, right? But we see the, we see with Hannah deep fervency and brokenness and pouring out of her soul to God. So what happens? What's the fruit of this prayer that she makes? Verse 17, still in 1 Samuel 1. Eli answered, Go in peace, and may the God of Israel grant you what you have asked of him. She said, May your servant find favor in your eyes. Then she went her way and ate something, and her face was no longer downcast. So before the answer, and before the blessing, Hannah experiences peace. Right? There's no real clear promise here. He's not saying, hey, you're going to have a kid, right? He's saying, may the Lord grant you your request, right? But he doesn't say, it's going to happen. Take it to the bank. There's no, nothing in the text clearly says that. Um, and there's no change in circumstance. But there's a change in her countenance because she's been with the Lord. She's come into the presence of the Lord in her brokenness. She's poured out her soul to the Lord. Philippians 4 is one of my favorite verses, chapter 6 and 7. Do not be anxious about everything, anything, excuse me, but in everything by prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present your request to God. And then what is it? And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. So there's this 
experience of peace. It, it, it doesn't promise that all things that make you anxious will be moved, removed. It doesn't say that every petition you ever put before the Lord will always be answered exactly as you ask, right? There's no promise here that she's having a kid yet, but she walks away no longer downhearted. She's, she's encouraged, right? She walks off in peace. And so my encouragement to you is, is in your brokenness. If you're in the state where Hannah's at, you feel like God has closed the door, pour out your heart to the Lord. Go to the Lord and receive His peace as you experience His presence which is greater than any present he can give you. God's presence is greater than any present that he hands to you. None of his gifts are greater than the presence of God. And so the first thing you need, the first thing you need, and the, uh, the deepest thing you need is God's presence in your life. Um, last night I've been having a crick in my neck for a couple of days, and I struggled to sleep a little bit on Friday night. Well, last night, boy, it really started messing me up. About 1 in the morning, I'm like, oh, baby, help me, baby. I'm calling out to my wife first, you know. I rub my back or something. I'm, I'm dying. I'm trying to figure out how to get comfortable. I can't get anywhere, anyway. Nothing's happening. I finally get out, go to the living room, sit in the recliner. That's not doing it. I go in the couch, number one, couch number two. I am trying everything I can to fix it. And finally, I'm like, all right, no, I'm going to stand up. And so I'm not sleeping from one to four or something. I'm up last night. Went out and checked my sprinklers. <laughs> I just got. I was, you know, just staring out the window, walking around outside. But what's interesting is, in my hurt, I started looking to the Lord, and I spent some good time with the Lord last night, fellowshipping with Him. And I thought, you know what, Lord, I'm I'm okay for you to withhold sleep from me, for the gift of your presence. Right? I'd rather have your presence than a good night's sleep. I think it's a good question we should all ask ourselves. Is that how much we desire the presence of God? Are we willing to, is sleep more valuable to us than God's presence? I think it's something to think about. All right. So she experiences peace as the fruit of prayer. And then God does respond in 1 Samuel 1, 19. Early the next morning, they arose in worship before the Lord, and they went back to their home at Ramah. Elkanah lay with Hannah, his wife, and the Lord remembered her. So in the course of time, Hannah conceived and gave birth to a son. She named him Samuel, saying, because I asked the Lord for him. We, we serve a God who remembers. The, the Bible again and again speaks of God who remembers. It's, it doesn't mean that God forgets, right? God's not absent-minded up there and being like, oh, whoops, <laughs> left you Israelites in the, <laughs> in Egypt for 400 years. I wasn't paying attention. No, God, when God remembers, he's, he's, he's acting upon their behalf. He's choosing to be mindful of them and to do something about their circumstances. It says in Genesis 8.1, But God remembered Noah and the wild animals and the livestock that were with him in the ark, and he sent a wind over the earth and the waters receded. Genesis 30.22, Then God remembered Rachel and listened to her and opened her womb. Much like this story. Exodus 2.24, God heard their groanings and he remembered his covenant with Abraham and Isaac and with Jacob. So we serve a God who remembers if you are in that place of brokenness where it feels like God has shut the door on you in some way, some deep brokenness in your heart that you're wanting something and God seems to keep closing the door, know that God hasn't forgotten you. Luke 12, 6 and 7 says this, Are not five sparrows sold for two pennies, yet not one of them is forgotten by God? Indeed, the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Don't be afraid. You are worth more than many sparrows. So God does not forget us. He is mindful of us, and he acts upon our behalf. It's interesting in James 4, 2 through 3, 
we see where uh, we see another picture. It says, "You want something, but you don't get it. You kill and you covet, but you cannot have what you want. You quarrel and you fight." That's kind of a picture of what a lot of us do. But there's pictures of Sarai and and um, and uh, Rachel, right? Of Saul when they have these issues, they they start fighting and quarreling, trying to figure out a way to get what they want, right? But it says this in the in the in in James four, it says. You do not have because you do not ask God. So often we are deprived of the blessings of God simply because we don't take the time to ask. We try to fix it on our own, right? It's also interesting if we, right here it says, when you ask, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives that you may spend it on what you get on your pleasures. You may spend what you get on your own pleasures. So we see Hannah not going the route of quarreling and fighting. And as the story goes on, we're actually also going to see that the gift that God does give her, the blessing that God does put into her hands, is not used for herself. Okay? She's not going to spend the gift of the child for her own pleasures. So let's, let's keep going on. Verse 21. When the man Elkanah went up with all his family to offer the annual sacrifice to the Lord and to fulfill his vows, Hannah did not go. She said to her husband, After the boy is weaned, I will take him and present him before the Lord, and he will live there always. Do what seems best to you, Elkanah, her husband told her. Stay here until you have weaned him. Only may the Lord make good his word. So some texts say his word. There's actually an argument over what should be there. If you go back to the Septuagint, which is very old Greek translation of the Hebrew, or the Dead Sea Scrolls, something we found about 50, 60 years ago, also one of the oldest copies we have. It actually says, may the Lord make good your word. And so if he's saying his word, he said, there's some idea that God's made some promise and he's going to make good it. Or if it's saying your word, it's saying, may God make good the promise that you've made to him. I, I kind of like that translation. I think that makes most sense to me. I'm not sure for, I'm not completely sure, but I think there's this idea that he's telling his wife, all right, you can stay here for a little while, a couple years until you wean him. Only may you fulfill the vow that you've made when it's time. That's what he, I think he's saying. So the woman stayed at home and nursed her son until she had weaned him. And after he was weaned, she took the boy with her, young as he was, along with a three-year-old bull, an ephah of flour, and a skin of wine, and brought him to the house of the Lord at Shiloh. When they had slaughtered the bull, they brought the boy to Eli, and she said to him, As surely as you live, my Lord, I am the woman who stood here beside you praying to the Lord. I prayed for this child, and the Lord has granted me what I asked of him. So now I give him to the Lord for his whole life. He will be given over to the Lord. And he worshiped the Lord there. So we see a couple elements in Hannah's life. Number one, we see she's faithful to her word. She has integrity. She made a promise, a very serious uh, uh, promise that required great sacrifice. And she keeps it. She keeps her word. Uh, and again, we do see, we see this great sacrifice, right? We have a picture of uh, Hannah taking her son, her only son, whom she loves, and sacrificing him giving him to the Lord. God tested Abraham one time with that, right? God told Abraham, take your son, whom you love, your only son, and bring him to the mountain, Mount Moriah, and we're going to sacrifice him there to us. But God stopped him because God does not and has not ever required child sacrifice. That's, that's one of the things that God hated about the Canaanites. They were killing their kids. They were sacrificing them to try to get God, they think it would make them have better crops. You know, it was, it was this dark, perverted system, right? And God hated that about them. And God said, well, I don't call, I don't call you to kill your own kids. That's why God stopped Abraham. But God allows Hannah to go through with it here. It's kind of interesting. Abraham was going to offer a blood sacrifice to kill his son. 
But Hannah is offering her son as a living sacrifice, a child dedicated to the Lord all of his life for God's service. God seems to be okay with those. I think it's an interesting picture. And the word here, given over, the Hebrew word, it says, she will be given over, or he will be, sorry, he will be given over to the Lord. That name actually sounds a lot like the word for Saul. So the Hebrew word for Saul sounds a lot like the, the, the word given over. And what's interesting is that Hannah asks for Samuel, and God gives her Samuel, and she, and he is given over. He is Saul. He is given over to the Lord. The nation of Israel, a little while later, asks for a king. God gives them Saul, and based on his name, he should have been given over to the Lord. But as you look at his life, you see that he's far from that. Right? It's not until David comes later on where you see somebody who's a man after God's own heart. So it's an interesting picture at the beginning of this. It's kind of hinting, insinuating that there's a problem with Saul. Right? That you're going to see the failure of Saul to carry out what he was intended to be. Does that make sense? And it's a little bit confusing, but... So what about application? How do we, what do we take from this text and bring over into our own lives? So these, this is what's called a narrative text, meaning it is a, it's a story in the Old Testament. The problem with trying to understand what to do with narrative text is, is you don't, you don't know what is descriptive, what's just describing what happened, and what's more prescriptive. What should we emulate? What should we copy? Right? Are we supposed to do everything that Hannah did? Is it is is the application that all of us need to gather up our three-year-olds and take them to Pastor Keith's house after service today? I bet he'd love that, you know. <laughs> I'm sure Kendall would too. No, I don't think the application it's it's not a, it's not a it's not a case study in whether we should send our kids to boarding school, right? This is that's not what the application that's not the, what we draw here. What do we what can we draw from this? What what principle trans transcends? There we go. Thank you. This is my wife here over here. So she is when I mess up. She, yeah, I did. Actually, I told her last night. I was like, listen, babe, my crick might really get bad. I'm just going to give you my notes. You get up there and read it. It'll be good. Better than I could say it, I'm sure. Um, anyway, so what, yeah, what transcends? What, what goes from that culture to our culture? I think there's this one idea is that what do you do when God says yes? When you cry out to the Lord for some blessing and God says, here you go. What do we, what, how do we respond to that? What do we do when God blesses us, when God answers our prayer? I think the first thing is, is to ask ourselves, how are we holding those blessings? Have we grabbed them tight and pulled them close to our chest? Lest the God who gave them to us in the first place want to take them back? Right? Do we freak out? You know, one of the sad stories of humanity is in Romans 1. It describes this good God who gives us the creation. He gives us the world to enjoy and to be blessed by. And what does man start doing? Rather than giving thanks to the Creator and worshiping Him, we start worshiping the creation. We make a God out of the gift, and we ignore the giver of all good gifts. Does that make sense? That is the tendency of mankind is when we turn our backs on God, we begin to worship the creation rather than the Creator. When Israel got the promised land, in Hosea, it speaks about, he says, when you were in the desert, I, I, I provided for you. And when you were satisfied, you became proud. And when you became proud, you forgot me. There's always a danger, sometimes much more of a danger. In our brokenness, when God is the door closed, we, we tend to draw near to God and to cry out to Him and receive His presence and experience communion with Him. But when God gives us the blessing, that's where the real danger comes. That's the tendency to start grabbing the blessing too tight, to start loving the blessing more than the blesser. You'll see where I'm going there? 
Second Corinthians 9:11 says this about us in the in the new covenant. It says, you will be made rich in every way so that you can be generous on every occasion. And through us, your generosity will result in thanksgiving to God. He's, he's speaking of giving. He's speaking of giving to others, right? Of giving to the, the ministry of the mission of God, right? And so he says, when God places wealth in our hands, it is so that we might be generous with it. We might hold it with open hands and give to others, right? And what's the end result of it? It's the glory of God. As we are generous with what God places in our hands, God receives thanksgiving. God receives the glory. 1 Corinthians 12, 7 speaks of the giving of the gifts, spiritual giftings. What giftings has God given you? What is the purpose of those? Are we to hoard them so that we look cool? You know, and we, you know, is, is the purpose of the gifts to make us look spiritual? No, the purpose of the gifts, and now to each one, the manifestation of the Spirit is given for the common good. So whatever gift God puts in your hands, whether that be finances, whether that be spiritual giftings, you hold them with open hands and you say, God, this is yours. Use it for your glory, for your purposes, that your will might be done on earth. Right? And that's what Hannah does. and It's beautiful. And then we see this beautiful prayer. So remember, Hannah is barren. She brings her brokenness to the Lord rather than trying to take it into her own hands. She goes to the, the holder of the key. And then before the answer, before the gift, the blessing of the child... What is, what is she, what does she experience? She experiences peace in the presence of God. And then God does give the gift. And when God gives the gifts, instead of hoarding it and saying, yes, I got my gift. I love my gift. I'm going to worship my gift. Instead, she levels it with open hands. She says, into your hands, God, use this child. He is given over to you all of his life. And then she has this beautiful prayer. I don't have time to go through all the details of the prayer, but I just want to highlight a couple of things. One of the, the key ideas, this is this prayer, it's actually one of the longest prayers recorded by a, uh, by a woman in the Bible, the Old Testament especially. And it's actually called the Magnificent of the Old Testament. They call Mary's prayer in Luke, that it's called the Magnificent, when she rejoices at the giving of Jesus Christ. And now this, this, there's a lot of parallels between the two prayers, which is really beautiful. And a couple of things that she extols, her theology, if you want to pull out what's the theology of Hannah in this prayer, it's that God is sovereign over the womb, over the length of our lives, over our prosperity, over our positions given in life. It is God who exalts. It is God who guards his saints. It is God who shatters and humbles the proud. So it's this picture of the God who raises up the humble and brings down the proud. It is the picture of a God who is sovereign. And I think that theological understanding that Hannah had is what led her to bring her brokenness to the Lord rather than trying to sneak through the back door, right? She recognized the sovereignty of God, and I think also it was that theology that also brought her peace in the presence of God. As she came into God's presence, she recognized the sovereignty of God. Whether God gave her the child or not, she was at peace because she had been in the presence of the Lord, and God is a good and sovereign Father. And last, victory is not gained by might. She's the unknown, humble, barren, humiliated woman of no title and no position. And God uses little Hannah for his glory. And the last thing about the psalm is it's worshipful. There's no indication that she is regretting her vow. There's no indication that she's grudgingly giving her son over to the service of the Lord. She is rejoicing. Now, what does God do next? God responds again, by the way, after the worship, after the sacrifice. 
And God and the Lord was gracious to Hannah. She conceived and gave birth to three sons and two daughters. So God, she was faithful with one. God gave her five. There's a, there's a, te- there's a picture in the Bible of being faithful with little. God will entrust with much. Not a promise that if, you know, you're going to always have five. You know, it's not, you can't take the details of it and say, oh, this transpires and I'm, if I got one kid, and I send him out to boarding school, I'm going to have five kids, right? That's, that's not what it's saying, right? That's not, that's not, that's taking too, you're going too much into the, the nuts and bolts and missing the big picture. The picture is that when we entrust what God gives to us for his glory and put it back into his hands, that God is willing to trust us with more blessing. God also takes care of Samuel. The gift she gives to God, it says, the boy Samuel grew in the presence of the Lord. In Samuel 2.26, it says, and the boy Samuel continued to grow in stature and in favor with the Lord and with men. You ever heard anybody described in that way? That's Jesus Christ, right? That's a picture of, there's this, this little hint, this type of, of Christ. You know, it's, he's not exactly like Christ. It's not saying that. It's saying that, but here's, here's God hinting of what he might do in the future. God loves to tie things together in the text. He goes on to say, in Samuel uh, chapter 3, it says, The Lord was with Samuel as he grew up, and he let none of his words fall to the ground. And all Israel, from Dan to Beersheba, Dan's at the top, Beersheba's at the bottom, recognized that Samuel was attested as a prophet of the Lord. The Lord continued to appear at Shiloh. Who's appearing at Shiloh? The Lord is appearing at Shiloh. You remember where the story started? With a broken nation and a broken religious leadership? God's now appearing. The word of the Lord was rare when the story starts. Now God is appearing, and there he revealed himself to Samuel through his word, and Samuel's word came to all Israel. The word of the God, word of God that once was rare is now being communicated to the people of Israel. They are hearing the word of God, but there's more. There's more in 1 Samuel chapter 7, 3 through 4, and Samuel said to the whole house of Israel, if you are returning to the Lord with all your hearts, then rid yourselves of the foreign gods and the Asherahs and commit yourselves to, it, to the Lord and serve him only and he will deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines. This is the key part. So the Israelites put away their bowels and their bales, or their bowels, their bales and their Asherahs and served the Lord only. Not only did God bless Hannah, but through her offering placed back into the hands of God, He blesses the entire nation. Revival takes place. The word of the God, the word of God that once was rare is now being spoken from the top of Israel to the bottom. And the people are repenting and revival is taking place. So what do we do with this? What do we take from this story? Are you in the place of waiting? Are you in the place where it feels like God has shut the door? Be faithful. Put your trust in a good and sovereign God who raises the humble and brings down the proud. Hannah showed faith before the blessing. But then Hannah also showed faithfulness after the blessing. Faith before, faithfulness after. Some of you are in the position of the one who's received something from God. You are holding some blessing or some opportunity or something that God has opened a door that God has opened into your life. And the question is, is how are you going to hold that blessing? Are you going to grab it real tight and hang on to it and use it for your own pleasure and your own good and, and, and celebrate in this just for you? Or are you going to open your hands up and let God use that which he has given you for his glory? Are you going to be faithful with the gifts of God? Hannah was in God's hands before 
he blessed her. And when he blessed her, she put the blessing back into God's hands. And the result of that was that God blessed a nation through her humble sacrifice of Samuel. Guys, stand up with me for a second. This is what we do at City Church Dallas. I don't know what you guys do here, but today we're doing this. Um, I, I just want us to reflect on your life for a moment. Right, we've, we've listened to this idea of Hannah. I think there's some ideas that we can take into our own life. Is there a door that God has currently shut? There's, uh, there was a guy that was speaking on this sermon, and he, he called uh, this text, and he said, God's withholding grace. He was describing the time in which we are in waiting for God to move, right? We're experiencing this, this like as if God has shut a specific door and then we're in, our heart is hurt and we feel like our, our hope has been deferred. He, he doesn't say that God is withholding grace from you. What he's saying is, is that God has given you the grace of withholding some blessing from you right now. What he's meaning is, is that sometimes God will take something that seems uh, a very natural desire to have, whether that be ministry opportunity or children or uh, whatever that is. God might remove that from you for a season for the purpose, for the grace of drawing you near to himself and giving you his presence and you drawing near to him and experiencing him in a deeper and a more profound way so that he can transform you more for the work that he has for you. So there's... Whichever spot you're at, if you're at the spot where you feel like God's closed the door and you're waiting, my exhortation is bring it to the Lord. Humble yourself before him. Cry out to him. Don't try to go around. Try to fix it on your own. Look to him. He is the sovereign God. He holds the key of all things in his hands. That which he opens, no man shuts. That which he shuts, no man can open. And if you're at the spot where you've received a blessing, how are you holding it? Are you willing to surrender it and submit it to our good and loving Heavenly Father? And let Him use what we have, our simple offerings, for His glory and for the blessing of others.